Jacob, Jacob, Joe and Jacob. Agile monkeys play. Jacob, Jacob, Joe and Jacob. Agile, unpredictable Jacob. Hello, welcome to Jacob, podcast about agile life and monkeys. Hi, Joe. Hi, Paul. Hi, Jacob. Hi, Jacob. Uh, Actually, t- this episode isn't Jacob. This episode is with our, our co-host. This is our second episode yeah, right. of a Jacob, because Paul has joined us. Yeah. Hi, Paul. It's good to have you back. Very really good. good to be here with you guys. Uh, Joe, what are we going to talk about? Paul, tell us. Well, what's the book for today? <laughs> so the book today we'll talk about is one I've been reading for a while. I've read it, read it a few times, listened to it a few times. Nice. And it's called Sooner, Safer, Happier mm. by John Smart. So it's a very interesting book. It's, um, he talks about patterns and anti-patterns around digital transformations. So we've had a lot of digital transformations. Um, this, is, this is the new, uh, the new thing in a lot of big and small companies around the world. And they don't always go well. And so he's identified some things that work better than other things and put it in their context. So he's not insisting this is the one right way to do things. In fact, he kind of says there isn't a one right way. Um, And yeah, very, very interesting book. He, he starts each chapter with a story. So okay. the, first, the first chapter, he compares building um, dams in China and a huge dam, the world's biggest dam in China. And he compares mm-hmm. that to writing a new computer system in the UK for benefit payments. And the dam succeeded and the benefit payments application didn't succeed. And that's because the Chinese are much better than the English at doing anything. (laughs) It's a short book, is it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not about that. It's about that the Chinese, this was their 56,000 dam they built. Really? 56,000? The numbers are in the book, but it's at that magnitude. They built huge dams. So this is the biggest one. But the computer (laughs) system in the UK was the first time. Hmm. So the dam right. is, although it's complicated, it's been done before and they could anticipate the problems they'd find in it. Whereas the computer system the UK was trying to build was emergent and they didn't, there were a lot of unknowns in there. So just some different approaches re- required for different types of work. So that, that was kind of the intro to the book. That's a nice story. Yeah, it's got similar ones in each one. There's one chapter about um, technical excellence and in, in big companies, we often have some older systems. And the story starts off with is somebody that found a um, prehistoric fish, caught a prehistoric fish. <laughs> and, you know, kind of using that as an analogy for some of the older components we have in our systems. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta go to work and work on that prehistoric fish. 
Um, so how does a prehistoric fish tie into a legacy system? <laughs> well, it's, it, it's, it's more just that, you know, in this, the speed of technology change, yeah. that's how old it is, some of these things we have in our systems. And they make, they make our systems really complex, which makes it hard to, to, move, to move faster to do things. That it's something that really slows us down. So it goes from there into um, some of the technical practices, some of the things we need to do to help to in, improve our systems and, and make our systems more suitable for, for the digital age and for uh, um, enabling faster, safer change. Mm. I love that, that that he mentions that because uh, I think people often forget uh, the nine principles from the Agile Manifesto for Software Development, which says that uh, we need to have continuous attention to technical excellence yeah. because it, it enhances agility. Mm. And yes. I, I you know there's so many Agile practitioners who focus on on everything but technical agility. Yep. That's a huge uh, we forget, missing. Uh, we forget, yeah, we forget that there is technical mastery as part of the, the agile coaching competency framework as well. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if it seems too hard to learn, too hard to explore, or lack of experience. Um, I think it's the market. I think it's. The, I, I think it's you know businesses, big businesses say, hey, we need we need agile specialists. We're going to promote from within, and they normally get people right. that are not have not been developers, do not have a, a huge history in development. Not not to say that they don't exist, but the, that doesn't seem to be at least in our experience where the people get promoted from. They come from like a BA testing background. Oh, if you're lucky, they come from a testing okay. background, um, or a project management, or or something like that. And so they don't have they don't even have. I mean, to to be able to coach on a technical excellence level is is a lot harder than it is on a people social level because yeah. we've we've been working in people and culture our whole lives. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So one of my um, one of my sayings I often say about Scrum is, if you run sprints for a long time building a single product, and you don't do any automation, hmm. eventually your entire sprint will be taken up doing uh, regression testing. Yep. Right. So yes. it, it's like it's not explicit in the scrum framework but if you don't do it mm. you're it's it's not sustainable you're not going to eventually your system and the, the testing around your system will become so complex it's like it's there should be a, a missing like 13th principle is invest <laughs> in automation <laughs> <laughs> well i yeah, and it's not only automation, right? I mean, you know, pairing and a lot of the practices that were in extreme programming. But yeah, we it's it, it doesn't have the emphasis it deserves. Um, yeah. And you know, and uh, Scrum was made to be simpler, maybe as some of it, and mm. and that's there's a lot of positive to that. Um, but it doesn't. It, it doesn't cover that, and sometimes that means that it gets forgotten. Yeah. Hey, Paul, um, I want to bring us back to the book real quick because I have two questions. Um, one is, what is this book? So you you said you bought a few copies of the book, so I'm assuming you've seen the physical copies because I know that you're a big digital audiobook man. Yeah. Um, do you, have you seen the physical copies? I haven't. Oh, okay. Uh, how many pages is it? It's, I think it's about seven or eight hours on audio. 
Okay, so it's not like huge. It's no. pretty accessible. Yeah. And um, you had mentioned that it uses it talks about patterns and anti patterns, and I would love to hear a little bit more about that and how he uses it in his stories or how he uses it to describe or to help the reader. Um, but can you explain like what's a pattern and anti pattern and how are they different and how are they uh, used in the context of sort of you said digital digital transformation digital, is his... digital transformation yeah. Yeah, so, so he uses them in a way he says uh, an anti-pattern is something that when we apply it as an organization, it often leads to suboptimal outcomes. So we, we don't get a good outcome from applying that anti-pattern. When we apply in a pattern, we're more likely to get good outcomes. So he talks about a little bit of headwind and a tailwind. So an anti-pattern provides a headwind, makes it harder for us to move forward. A pattern applies a, provides a tailwind. So anti-pattern is still a type of pattern, but it's just yeah. not a pattern that helps us towards our goal. Yeah, and, he, and okay. he, you know, you said um, there may be a context where it does, where an anti-pattern provides a tailwind. Um, and he mentioned, it, you know, if we're under severe financial pressure and it's do something tomorrow or die, then you may do something that's not that's an anti-pattern in normal situations. So there's context where, so, and I really like the approach of not insisting this is the right way to solve something. He also talks about, you know, take the patterns as you need them. Don't, it's not a matter of going through the book and applying everyone and making sure you tick all the boxes. It's, it's what's, what's useful now, which of these patterns would be useful to apply now in your organization. I like it. I like it because it's, it's again, reminds me of the uh, patterns for object-oriented programming and how they didn't say you need to use all these patterns. They say these patterns work in these situations and, and apply them, play with them and break them as well, create your own patterns that's gonna work for you. Yeah, and if your context is exactly the same, then the pattern works exactly the same. Yeah. And if the context is a little bit different, you may need to adapt the pattern as well. Yeah. yeah. I think it's really interesting um, books like this that are coming out, which are, even though we talk about patterns and anti-patterns and suggestions on what you can do, they're really not action-based, they're observation-based. Um, and so they're trying to, it seems like it's trying to improve people's ability to observe what's happening so they can make better decisions. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that's an important why do, you, why do you think a book like this is an important book uh, for people to read? So I think we, we, we just try to follow a, um, a methodology or we, we latch onto something. So I think a little bit it goes back to deterministic. We, we try to understand exactly what we wanna do and we try to plan it in the same way we plan other kinds of projects that we understand well. And it's not a, it's not a, we, we should be applying agile in an agile way. So he quotes um, Martin Fowler around that, um, imposing agile methods and introduces a conflict with the values and principles that underlie agile methods. So, I, I guess that's part of where the patterns and anti-patterns are coming in, is that we, we've got a particular outcome we want for each organization. 
and the, the patterns can help us to get there. And it's, but it's a pattern rather than a, a color by numbers um, way of doing things or getting to that outcome. Mm -hmm. Mm, so outcomes, does he talk about outcomes? Yeah, so the, the, the title of the book is Sooner, Safer, Happier, which is, a, which is probably a catchier version than the full one, which is mm. better value, sooner, safer, happier. And one of the major points in one of the early chapters is it's not about Agile. It's not about mm. Lean. That's not the goal. Agile and lean and DevOps and uh, design, lots of other things are tools in the toolbox. And tools is a little bit light because there's huge bodies of knowledge under all of these things, rich, huge bodies of knowledge. But they're still not the goal. We can become agile and still fail. And measuring becoming yes. agile creates agile yeah. but it may not recreate may not equate to the outcomes we're looking for yes. so, so the first thing he says is focus on delivering better value value is the the hardest part of this how do we measure it right and that's really context specific what is value to you but measure it make it visible it could be you know, some macro level things, but we also want below that a little bit. Might be number of customers, new customers, customer retention, customer churn, all of those kind of measures could be some of what we're measuring. On the next level, it could be user experience around how many customers drop out of a process, those kind of, but how do we identify and measure value? And then the sooner, is specifically not faster. And I think an earlier version, um, the author John Smart has given a lot of talks on the DevOps Enterprise Summit. And I think an earlier version was faster instead of sooner. But the distinction is sooner is about reducing our time to value. Um, and he talks about measuring our cycle time. So that's from the time we start something till finishing and our throughput, the number of things we're delivering um, per month. And then our flow efficiency, which is the one, you know, he says, and I've seen it, it's hard to measure. And flow efficiency is about how much time we actually spend working on something compared to all the wait time that's in the, in the pattern. So that that's your sooner. It's really interesting that, um, and, and I, I agree with this sentiment, personally and from my personal experience. Um, and I've always found something like this that's kind of fundamental, really interesting when you see organizations go for big agile change or big delivery change, and they talk about empowerment and they spend a lot of time creating cross-functional teams, creating a structure that they think will support that way of delivery and very little time training or helping to upskill the team to actually self-manage their workflow. And these are the kinds of metrics that if you're aware of, know how to measure them, you know, you can uh, 
Um, you can keep yourself from drowning in work. <laughs> you can um, you can literally feel like you have control over your own process because you use these things to change your process, and you have the ability to easily communicate to stakeholders to um, you know keep them from being upset because expectations aren't being met. So I mean, that's really interesting that he's because this book almost sounded like an agile book, but now he's got a sort of like a flavor of Kanban in it as well, mm -hmm. uh, which I like. I like the workflow, like the emphasis on workflow. Um, where does he, so, you know, the, the idea of throughput cycle and flow efficiency, where does he talk about that as like a starting point in an organization? Cause you can, you can start measuring that anywhere. Where does he, does he have a preferred place to begin or? Yeah, so he is also in, in transformation talks quite a bit about not not doing big bang so not slapping it onto the whole mm. organization and he some <laughs> of using that is to he uses um uh, kubler ross has some has some stages of grief and originally okay. that was around death mm. but eventually it was applied to other kinds of change so she, um, you know, when people have change put on them, they go through these stages of grief. And the bigger the change, the longer this takes. And these stages can be, you know, they include anger, resistance. You know, they're quite um, hard from an organizational change perspective. And so his recommendation is to start smaller and to start with the the innovators so the people that are keen and also to try and get a vertical slice through the organization so not just starting with it in technology yeah not a um you know we're kind of past that it's been in technology a lot of technologists have been in this space for the last 10 to 20 years right um but taking this vertical slice so you've got from from the executive level down looking at getting this started looking at it as a pattern as a as a front runner and showing the results yeah i'm, I'm hugely in, in support of that um Jakob will know this from working with me I in do. the past um and and just the i mean th that works on so many levels because i, I think there is a um a misconception whether it's articulated or not i think there's this assumption that you if we train the teams that's enough and even if we're changing everybody else it's like the teams we just focus almost all of the effort on the teams when and they do it broad like transformation is is first viewed broad when when it you know like you said maybe we could look at it vertically because you can't really have a new skill or a new role unless you've trained the environment to support that new skill and new role so if all the other decision makers involved don't know what they're seeing <laughs> or don't know how to give them feedback to encourage a certain behavior or to um uh, encourage constructive failure, then, mm -hmm. then you know, eventually we just revert back, or we get some sort of weird demon child version. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and I've I've seen that in a number of organisations, right? Where we've we've had a team, we've done a lot of work with the team, the team's working really well, mm. but mm. there's so many impediments, so many systemic impediments, and can the team still improve? Of course they can, but there's from an organizational outcome perspective, but no longer the bottleneck, right? Yeah. The bottleneck is somewhere else in the organization. And if we don't um, 
solve that. And that's another thing with both Scrum and Kanban. I think they don't solve things. They actually highlight problems in the system. Yes. Um, because we've got shorter cycles and therefore those, those problems in the wider system come up. If we don't fix them, the, we just keep going. The system goes around in circles. Um, <clears throat> um, so a few other quotes from the book. One of them is um, from, it comes from Barry O'Reilly, his books Unlearn and Lean Enterprise before that. Um, uh, so the old way is think big, start big, learn slow. Mm. And the new way is yes. think big, start small, learn fast. Mm. And that's it's a very pithy, but but a, a very good way of thinking about things. And the the start think big, start big. When things are deterministic, that's fine. When we know all the answers, this is not that bad. But when we don't, it locks us into things that are wrong, and it's hard for us to learn because we're we're so locked in. We've promised these things, and that. It, it comes back down to the re responding to change part of their job manifesto, right? And I think it's scary because it's we made scary. this big bet and now we need to admit that we are wrong. Yeah. Well, I would be very scared <laughs> to, to do that. Yeah. But it's this fear of uncertainty as well, right? Yeah. And, and we all have that. Yeah. Big Bang is kind of like ripping off the Band-Aid quickly, right? Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I know I got to do it. So uh, the the least the, the perceived least painful way is just to do it really quickly all at once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, a few of uh, what should we do? Psychology. Uh, psychology. He talks about agentic state a bit. Mm. So when we always tell people what to do and we don't allow them to um, have any feedback, we don't. Mm. Uh, we're not open to information flowing the other way. We end up with people in an agentic state. So they just say, yes, sir. And they do what they're told. And that's really dangerous when we are in complex spaces because things break and that information flow stops happening. So he mentions a lot of um, cases there, including Boeing with some of their sort of, he talks about a change there from a technical leadership where they, really cared about the technical quality to a financial leadership where it was more about, I think one of the quotes from one of the CEOs was, it's not about the box, it's about the financials. The, everyone assumes the box is good. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of, we've lost that focus on, on technical excellence and quality. And we're more focused on how many units can we produce and having more units produced. And the idea of locus of control he mentions as well. Which Locus, is about locusts of control? Locusts, not locusts. Oh, locusts. Oh, okay, I was hoping you were talking about locusts. <laughs> locusts I was like, this is weird. I like it. No, okay. Locus of control. What does that mean? So do, do we have control of things internally or is everything outside or is all the control outside of us? Mm. So when there's an internal locus of control, we, we have more ownership of things. We, we, we take on, you know, we... We think about things, we take on the thinking about things. We know it's on us. When everything's spoon fed to us, we don't, mm. <laughs> right? So 
in a in a emergent world we need that locus of control to be more with the people doing the work it reminds me that the conversation uh, Joe that we have with Daniel Mazik how he talks about if you want to change the culture mm. you need to change how decisions are made you need to oh, give true. authority to people and within days he, he claims you need you to engage the culture yeah, yeah. engage and and yeah, give people a chance to make decisions, but true decisions, not fake decisions, yeah. but true decisions. Yeah. And um, yeah, so he mentions Amy Edmondson and he uses a few of the case studies from there around psychological safety. And, you know, she's got a leadership guide in the back of her book. And some of it is, you know, using Kinefin as well. She doesn't mention Kinefin, but when there's uncertainty as a leader, we need to be framing that uncertainty. And we should be framing what we're asking from people in a way that says, I don't know everything here. Mm. I need your yes. help. And so that that opens up the thinking, that, op that gives people the safety to say, really, I think we should be doing this. Mm. And that's massively powerful. Because yes. you, you, you lose that danger of um, just following their target no matter what and not being not being safe to say actually we can't reach their target or we shouldn't reach their target in the case of wells fargo it was that we shouldn't right so that yes. the, the target was six accounts per customer customers mm. didn't want six accounts so mm. we shouldn't be they doing wanted that, eight but... <laughs> they wanted eight accounts <laughs> that's where they went wrong no yeah, yeah. And, and there was there were stories in a book of um people that didn't meet their targets being forced to come in on Saturday to do training to better meet their targets. Wow. It was a pretty toxic, but there was no way to, to tell that story up. Training is punishment. I like that. That's, that's, that's a fantastic idea. I think we should all embrace it. <laughs> um, okay. What should we do? This, uh, a, yeah. Sorry. So, sorry, Paul. Um, I'm just looking at, at the, the website of, of the book and one thing that I don't think we often talk about and I think maybe we want to talk about yes. uh, under safer it talks about continuous compliance yeah and I think that in many organizations Ooh. compliance is a big thing that you know causes troubles how do we deal with compliance in agile world and we have to do all of this stuff we cannot cut the scope and all of you know we have deadlines and how do we deal with deadlines when we have sprints all of these uh, misconceptions are coming through. Yeah. So maybe we could talk a bit about this. How does how does Jonathan Smart talk about continuous compliance? Yeah. So if we just talk about the safety, right? That's one of the that's one of the yes objectives. The sooner, safer, happier is we. We have these safety, he talks about safety silos quite a bit. So those mm -hmm. silos means that often safety is very slow. We have to go and ask someone else. They don't understand the right. context. They're not involved in delivery. I like that, so, safety silos. Ooh, so That's new. And he also talks about safety within safety. So he talks about mm. within those safety silos, sometimes there's several layers of people, CYA, right? <laughs> that everyone needs someone else to sign off for them to keep them safe. Yeah. So we're just not. Yes. And that slows it down even further. 
so what he suggests is, and he also says within safety, there's silos. So, sorry, go back a step. Um, he talks quite a bit about Sydney Decker's work. So there's safety too. It's about looking for the positive over looking for the negative. Okay, so like and a cases, inquiry almost. Yeah, one of the cases there was in hospital operations, they looked at what factors cause failure and what factors cause success, and the factors were the same. <laughs> okay. So, so there's. So if they'd gotten rid of the factors to just they, address the they negatives, get, they would have gotten rid of the factors that were yeah, positive about it in the yeah, first place. Okay. Yeah. And so they said some of it's about the speaking up. So that's the end on court principle, yep. where the workers at the front line in Toyota have the power to stop the line when they see anything wrong. So that kind of principle of being able to stop was one of those big factors. Um, but let's get more practical. So he talks about rather than having all the safety silos that overlap each other, right, and sometimes contradict each other. So privacy and reporting for AML my conflict right so he talks about having pods within delivery streams of people from each of these safety silos working together and working and he talks about coaches too but being aligned with the delivery of that value so um, aligned through guild to their safety structures but aligned to the tribe and to delivery and I think it's quite a powerful model. Um, you know, quite often, and the, the mindset to me, and this is not from the book, but enabling versus control. You know, often these silos see their job as controlling and keeping safe. And that often looks like saying no. And they often don't have deep context of what the unit is trying to do. And even those trade-offs can be quite hard for them. And they often default to saying no. So putting them in the context of the delivery and finding ways to make it safe and that, that enabling mindset, I think that, that, that was quite a neat pattern. Yeah, I, I found often people say that they are um, guardians of something, guardians of, mm. of safety, of risk or culture. And I always wonder, do you, really, do you really need to guard it or do you need to enable it? Because it's going to change anyway. It's going to keep evolving. So do you need to guard what is there right now? Or do it, you change? Maybe people just want to wear like armor. And um, <laughs> you may, maybe they just, you know, they have an authori authoritative um, yeah. desire to, yeah. <laughs> it's like the like coaches want to kind of be not coaches every once in a while. So, you know, we, whereas coaches are very passive and you know, we want to listen and then feedback. Sometimes we want to be guardians too. Yeah. <laughs> guardians of agile. So yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like the really sad uh, prequel to guardians of the galaxy <laughs> um paul i always love when you uh when when i get to spend time with you talking about books because you always unfold the elements of the books in so many different ways um you know like the the safety silo thing i'm just i'm still tripping on that i'm gonna dig into that later i, I love that idea because now that you've said it i'm like oh it's totally get that um, who do you, so after having read this book and probably talked about it with a few people, who do you think this book was written for? So I, I, 
I think it's an awesome book for people that are involved in a transformation, which probably means you're in any large company in the world. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but but you're seeing things go wrong, and you're seeing, um, you, you know, what is this agile thing? Why is it? Why are we doing this? Why do we need this? Is it another fad? Which parts are fad? What's here to stay? Mm. All of those kind of questions. It gives. It, it doesn't give absolute answers, but it, it will help you to see some things that are going on, and how how you might, or some things you could try to make those things better, or to steer in a different direction, or mm. to call out. This sometimes ends up like that. Could this be so? Yes. Uh, yeah. So. You know, I, I think leaders of organizations would get a lot out of this, but just people that are um, on the ground under this, this could be a really uh, powerful book to get a, a feeling for for why and some of the complexity in mm. the space. It's not, you know, this this is not an easy thing. It's not a it's, it's not a three step process. It's and and it's it's not over either. Um, so this is a journey. Uh, one of the quotes, another quote from the book was, "Be the best at being better." Mm. You know, it's it's not it's not that we're done. It's that you know we're learning. The the last chapter is about learning organizations. So just we're going to keep learning. We're going to keep getting better. And organizations that don't, you know. Um, the technologies like the cloud, um, the, the systems that are available, it's easier and easier. A lot of the barriers to entry that were there 20 years ago aren't. Mm. So organizations, uh, small, nimble organizations are going to eat the big ones if, if, if they can't find ways to um, do the things that digital transformations are promising, I guess. That was great. That was amazing. Awesome. And Thank I, you, Paul. I'll, for all the listeners, I'll, I'll put some links in the chat. So there's there's a number of things. There's a few of the audio chapters available free on SoundCloud. Oh, cool. Oh, and okay. some 10 minute um, video summaries of the chapters. So, so there's quite a bit of material. You can get a taste. He's done a lot of talks on at the DevOps Enterprise Summit. So I'll give some of those links. Um, and Thank if you. people want to follow up, they can get a taster before they commit to the whole book. Um, I've been listening Perfect. to it on audio and I've, I've, I've read through it once and on Kindle. That's fantastic. Paul, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you so much for co-hosting with us. Awesome. Awesome to catch up with you. Yeah, and thank you to our... We need to do it again soon. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yes, because if I if I know you, Paul, I know that you've already you got another book that you're reading. So, <laughs> yeah, there's um, there's a there's a few. They keep coming, and there's 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 probably a hundred on my list that I bought that I haven't read yet. So it's, it's I'm I'm pretty sure Kindle has a uh, Kindle or Audible has like your name as one of their profiles that they aim their service towards. <laughs> Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you. Thank you, Jakob. Thank you, our Thank listeners. You. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.